Welcome to Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com, a place to talk about the experiences that we call life. We'll share the sorrow and the joy that makes this earthy existence real and makes us who we are. Now, here's your host, Renee Steelman. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. I think I'm going to be un... uh, Can you hear me? I think I might be unplugging my microphone. It sounds a little strange. But other than that, the morning is going very well, and I hope that your morning is going very very well. Um, I think you're going to be really, uh, really pleased that you tuned in to Heaven, Scent, and Bet this morning. Um, I have a couple of guests that are going to be very, very, uh, very, very interesting, I think, to you. And I want to give you a little bit of a background before I actually start the show and talk to uh, all of you about the journey, uh, what it takes if you have a child that doesn't seem to be developing correctly or uh, that you're just having issues with or you're getting calls from the school and um, they're expressing concerns over behavior or you see behavior you know, in your home. Um, I, I, I just have so much compassion and, and empathy for parents in, you know, the 21st century because I feel as though parents are dealing with things that, uh, we didn't have to deal with many, many years ago. Um, there's definitely something going on in the water, but, um, it's something that I, I actually experienced as a mother. I had a couple of boys. Why is it always the boys? A couple of boys that were definitely on the attention deficit uh, range. And I had to deal with grandmothers, you know, other people that would say, he's not attention deficit. He just needs discipline. And, um, but I knew because I had six children that, um, that were all raised very similarly that there is, uh, a, uh, you could parent children the same way, and each child comes with their own individual personality and their own, <clears throat> excuse me, personality traits. So um, I have to tell a funny story. I don't know if I've ever uh, told this on my show before, but just as an example, uh, we were living out on some beautiful acreage. We thought that would be a fabulous place for to raise six children, to give them the freedom to be able to run and play. And and so we were living out in a small town in Oregon, and we put them in the school, of course, and it was time for teacher conferences. So we went over to the middle school for teacher conferences, and the first teacher said to me, um, oh, you must be... Um, you know, said my my child's name, and I said, no, that's not the correct first name. And he said, uh, oh, uh, well, I, and then I gave him my child's real name, and he said, oh, yes, but he said that this was his name. And I said, well, it's not his name, so that, you know, let's start over again. So then he said to me, and oh, by the way, we have another Steelman in the school. Are you related at all? And I said, and I gave him the name of my other child, and he said, I said, yes, those are both my sons. And the teacher said, there was a pause. And then the teacher said, from the same father? And I said, yes, you know. So that's how, that's how night and day my, my two oldest boys were, uh, just totally different personalities. And I just got a kick out of that, that the teacher thought, what? How, how could these two so different children come out of the same home? But that is the reality of having children. So if you are experiencing 
problems with your children at school, social problems with your children. Uh, you've been getting phone calls saying this isn't working. Your child isn't fitting in. I'm sure you're throwing up your hands and wondering what, what can I do? What I, I need to figure this out. So I've been kind of doing this for a long time. And now we have a grandson that's living with us, and he is kind of experiencing a lot of problems fitting into a, a typical school program. And so it's been a journey, and I have to tell you, or, or I don't know if the word tell you or warn you as parents, that you have to be, as I've mentioned before in illnesses or any other thing, you have to be your own advocate and you have to be your child's advocate. And But I am blessed to live in a part of the country where there are a lot of services available. And so it's, you know, it's still a journey, and I'm going through a lot of things, but I am so pleased with what I'm finding. And one of the programs that I have been turned on to is a program called Child Neuropsychology PC. And this is a clinic that's run by three doctors. And they really, they formed the clinic in July of 2009 to serve the community, to find solutions for children that are just on a different developmental path. And they uh, are, are serving a need to really get in and find out how these kids are clicking and what would be the best way to serve and treat these kids. So these doctors work in conjunction with therapists and other physicians to come up with a program that will help these children to be the most successful in their life. So today I would like to introduce you to two of the doctors that work at the Child Neuropsychology Clinic and their name is uh, their names are Dr. Nancy Loss and Dr. Corey Anderson. So thank you so much uh, Dr. Anderson and, and Dr. Loss for joining me this morning. It's a pleasure. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, I'm so pleased. And uh, Dr. Loss, you were the first one to contact me. Your clinic had been recommended to me uh, to from a program that I'm actually trying to get my grandson enrolled in. And they uh, did a pretty extensive evaluation themselves to see if my child would fit into their program. But there, there were just a couple of pieces that were missing. And they asked me if I could get those pieces to them and I just was like I would love to but where do I go and so they provided me with your name and I called you and you were very gracious to get back with me right away and then you you looked at your schedule and said you know my my colleague Dr. Anderson would be able to fit you in right away and I'm so pleased because you don't hear that a lot when oftentimes when you call doctors uh it's I know with OHSU it was a two-year wait to get in to be evaluated um so tell me more, both Dr. Anderson and Dr. Loss, tell me more about how you and your other partner, uh, is it Dr. Holler? How does she pronounce her last name? It's Dr. Hoover. Hoover, okay. Um, how did the three of you get together, and how did you see that there was a need and then decide that you would uh, fulfill this need? Do you want to speak to how you and... Uh... Yeah, I'd be happy to tell you our story. Um Dr. Hoover and myself um, had followed one another working at um, one of our local hospitals, what's now known as Randall Children's Hospital, and then we shared um, uh, as staff members at a neurodevelopmental program, which was most recently known as the ARTS um, program. And as we started to really um, move through, and the, that program was making some changes, we really wanted to have control 
over the experience that we offered families. And so we decided to open up Child Neuropsychology PC. Um, as a neuropsychologist, we're training, uh, our training is a little bit different than our psychology colleagues. So we all have our doctorate in, in child clinical psychology here, but then also a two-year postdoctoral fellowship in pediatric neuropsychology. So what that means is that we look at kids through a lens of what we know about child development and what we know about brain development to try to tease out those neurophysiological factors that affect how a child thinks and learns and solves problems. So we were thrilled to be able to add an, uh, Dr. Anderson to our team, and uh, he, of course, had met those basic training requirements and came to us from John Hopkins, um, Kennedy Krieger, which is a prestigious neuropsychological training ground, and um, we love working together. We appreciate the opportunity to talk about every child who comes through our practice with one another to make sure that we offer the best interpretation that we can to a family of what a child's strengths and challenges are. I think that's so fascinating, and I, I I kind of relate it back to, I remember listening to another doctor say that, you know, in the area of psychology, you're one of uh, the few physicians who don't actually look at the organ that you're treating. Other doctors, you go in and they'll do an x-ray, they'll do a CAT scan, they'll do an MRI. They want to look at the organ, they want to look at whatever's going on in your system, your bones, your muscles, your tendons, and then they can take all of that information back. But so often in the psychology, they don't actually look at the brain itself or even try to investigate how the brain is functioning and then put that into the evaluation as far as how the child is acting. And so I, I'm really excited to to see that that is something that you're actually doing as far as brain development and where that child is at. What do you think, who are the people that come to you? What are the problems that people are bringing to you the most? So to how I would answer that, I, I think as you alluded to initially, um, the families that we see and the children that we um, see often are mysteries. Um, they are struggling in school. Um, they may not have an identifiable neurologic injury such as a tumor, cancer, or seizures. They may have um, uh, developmental history that is delayed and still struggling in school and behavioral challenges or difficulties with attention and concentration. These kids um, are mysteries to their parents and to their teachers. And those are the kids that we find um, we work well with and can help um, the entire, the, the child's entire team um, come up with a good plan to help the child be successful in the classroom and at home. That's so interesting. Do you find that children who, like you mentioned, they, maybe you have a child that's that's having seizures or there's a very clear identifiable problem, do you find that children that land on uh, the spectrum, the autism spectrum disorder, do you find that those kids are um, harder to evaluate? Or, I like, I, for example, uh, the reason I ask that is, I have a daughter who has a three-year-old son that is clearly autistic. He fits all of the red flags. And at a young age, it was easy to diagnose him 
by just watching his behavior from the things that you would get off the internet. Does he line things up? Is he nonverbal? Does he not make eye contact? But when you have children that are falling on the spectrum, but they make eye contact, they're not lining things up. They seem to be, they have a desire to be social, but they're not social. Is that uh, uh, something that you deal with a lot? Absolutely. I would say yeah. Yeah, I, I think for, for kids, um, I think there's a couple different types of evaluations for kids who are on the spectrum. If you're looking for a purely diagnostic evaluation, um, there's a lot of wonderful um, clinics and practitioners in the community who do um, that who, who do that role. Um, mm-hmm. The kids that we see are those kids who have some characteristics of um, ASD or autism spectrum disorders. Um, and then some other characteristics where they are informed by social interaction. They do make inconsistent eye contact. Um, but for us, it's more about um, how they're adapting to their environment, more more so than just the diagnostic category. Okay? And, and that's so important because... There, there is, I mean, these kids, when I see the statistics for one out of 68 children being diagnosed on the spectrum, you realize that that means that there'll be one in 68 adults that will be function, that need to function in whatever social environment they're in. And so that's where you guys come in as far as helping to diagnose where these children are having difficulties fitting into their environment. Is that correct? That's, that's a, a big part of what we do. I mean, I think also that it's important to recognize that as scientists, we're always trying to clarify what does this diagnosis mean. And the reason being that we want the diagnosis to guide us toward clinical interventions and supports that are relevant to a child. I would also say that one of the ways that we, that some children we see are categorized on the autism spectrum is through school. And so they get services based on that categorization, which is not always accompanied by a clear diagnostic process. So there's sometimes services that are identified because they meet the criterion based on a school definition, um, but sometimes still the mystery about they don't quite fit in, they're not quite exactly the way someone might have expected them to be based on that diagnostic category can lead them to a pediatric neuropsychologist who is doing exactly what you're saying. We're looking at function. We're looking at the ability of the brain to adapt in real-world time to the demands that are placed on a child. And also, because kids are dynamic and they're always changing on us, we want to make sure that we recognize that the expectation of children also has a developmental trajectory, and it's really the match. How well are they able to meet those expectations at this point in time? Oftentimes, it's the child is exactly the same as they were last year, but mm-hmm. suddenly come third grade, they're not able to fit in in the same way that they were. They can't meet the demands. And it's really because the school situation changes in part because there's a big burst in brain development that happens around that age. And it allows kids to be able to manage multiple pieces of information simultaneously, which changes the way classrooms are structured. So they're doing more independent work and more peer-guided projects and things like that. So if your development isn't on par with that, your vulnerability in those areas can be exposed for the first time because of the shift in expectation 
not because there's a shift in underlying neurophysiology. So we're mm. always trying to be able to look at things from a complex um, um, analysis that is uh, not only taking developmental considerations into play, but also looking at, as uh, Dr. Anderson said, looking at the match between functional capacity, what we know about brain development, and then what we also want to be able to identify, which is the child's capacity to be able to adapt in real time to the demands that they face. And that is so important. I remember as a young mom, uh, originally I I thought I really wanted to study early childhood education, and but I, I think I'm trying to remember how many children I had at this time. I might have just had a couple, and so I started taking classes in early childhood education, and I I soon, soon was you know had to drop out because I just I had real children that I was taking care of, and so a lot of the homework was go to a park, study a child, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go home. And study this child. But um, I remember some of the classes that I took, it was so enlightening for me to find out that we as parents, and a lot of time as adults, expect children to act in a way that is just not functionally possible for them because they their brain has not gotten there yet. And so to look at a child at a 12-month or an 18-month-old level and to know where they're supposed to be at and then to teach them or discipline them or however uh, on that level was so enlightening for me. And we as parents, as everyone always says, they don't come with handbooks. We don't usually study early childhood education. It's not a requirement to have a child. Um, but to be able to find out what is appropriate at a certain age and then to go from there was so, that was very enlightening. And the other thing that I got my hands on was a book about raising boys and the difference between boys and girls. And since I had four boys and two girls, um, that was very enlightening as well to see the difference. And and I just find it fascinating even now to watch children and to see, for example, little girls over in a corner uh, talking, 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 and then little boys over in a corner just rolling and frolicking and playing and wrestling and just, you know, slapping each other. And it's and to look at exactly and to realize that that's normal. And that that's, you know, it's, it's so refreshing. But what you meant, is that why middle school is is so torturous for all of us? Because you're just going from this nice little classroom with Mrs. Smith and all your friends are in the same classroom. And then suddenly you're put into a school where you have a locker and you have to move from classroom to classroom. Is that do you see a lot of kids that are entering into that middle school phase and they're just like, what? Yes. Yes, the short answer is yes, but what you're saying <laughs> yeah, there's a, a significant increase in the um, use of executive demands, independent executive functioning um, in, in middle school and beyond, but in middle school it really starts. You have multiple classrooms, um, you have a locker, so you need to get to one classroom to the next, um, you have different expectations from teachers. The reading demands increase. Uh, so there's a lot of um, increased expectations at that age, and we often see kids um, around that time who have difficulty meeting those expectations. And I think, I mean, a lot of it is the planning and organization right. that those changes require. 
So being able to make sure that you not only get to your locker, but you have the right supplies when you get to your next class. Being able to bring home the right supplies when you uh, are doing your homework. Remembering even, I mean, we can't tell you how many kids we see where parents um, are frustrated by the fact that they complete homework that never gets turned in. Mm. And it's the multitasking requirements um, where the brain has to be able to manage multiple things at once. Um, to be able to track different pieces of information and integrate it, prioritize it, and sequence it in order to be able to meet those functional requirements. And the fact is is that most kids can do that, um, and that's why schools make those changes in how they're structured. But some kids can't, or some kids need more time and more support to get to those capacities. And, you know, in a world where we now have increased demands for production, for quick turnaround and for complexity. Um, I think that sometimes those vulnerabilities or differences in natural style become more exposed and more disabling in functional terms than they might have in times past. Mm -hmm. And that was going to be my next question. Do you feel as though, have you seen changes throughout the years that as you just said more there 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 does seem to be more of a demand for children to have those organizational skills and um do you where would you say you started to see uh, a huge influx of kids that were kind of standing in the corner going what i don't know how to do this can you really nail it down to a time in your practice or a change can you can you narrow it down to a change in the school system or what what's been your experience I think that there's always been that um, a subgroup of kids who have had challenges meeting the requirements of a school setting. Um, if you mm-hmm. look at even as you talked about the whole concept of the condition we now call ADHD, you can look mm-hmm. at literature from hundreds of years ago and find these kids described as well. So I mm-hmm. think that we've had stylistic differences. I will say that I think the information age, right, the age of the computer, has allowed mm-hmm. us to do many things at um, quick net pace, and it has mm-hmm. allowed us to have access to complex information. Um, and so I think that that does um, promote learning, and it promotes exploration, and it promotes a lot of great things. But if you're having trouble with organization and planning and, and trying to determine what is the most salient piece of all this information, you're asked to um, synthesize and integrate, it can really put you at a total, you can be totally stymied um, mm-hmm. by the expectations that are now uh, placed on kids. I always right. Say, you know, we know that the executive system of the brain, which is those, it's the interconnectedness, so it's those fast communication systems that allow you to use your resources reliably and to your advantage. We know mm-hmm. that they have a long developmental trajectory and that they reach maturity typically in kind of mid-20s for, for boys. I always joke that the insurance companies had it right. They didn't reduce the rates for young male drivers until they were 25. Uh, <laughs> and you know what? Brain science has caught up with that. <laughs> yep, exactly. That's so interesting. Do you work with the, so then do you work with parents when they come to you with a, with a child that's having problems to help them to, uh, clarify a uh, 509 or an IEP so that they can help these kids that, that aren't going to be able to get those executive skills? Do you work with parents on that level? Yes, absolutely. Um, okay. You know, uh, part of 
the evaluation. It's uh, in addition to test results and finding where your child is functioning compared to same age peers and identify their strengths and challenges. Um, we also we really can consider our role um, as a consultant on your child's team. So we regularly um, consult with educators, therapists, um, to help make sure that the recommendations that we provide are appropriate um, for home and for the classroom. And that would include a 504 plan if an IEP um, needs to be implemented or modified. Um, we work very closely with um, educators and, uh, and parents on that. The one thing that I might add to that also is that the schools are commissioned and I think do a very adequate job um, of being able to identify whether or not a child meets criteria for special education. The Mm -hmm. type of the evaluation that they do is structured to answer that basic question. However, as neuropsychologists, our agenda is a little different from that and that what we want to do is to really speak about an individual child's profile strength and challenge and how that helps them meet the expectations that are uh, placed on them at this point in development. And so sometimes we're in a different position to be able to gather different type of data and certainly to analyze that data from a different perspective. And we see children who are, quote-unquote, functioning in the average range but because of the nature of the evaluation that we're able to do and the type of analysis that we can do based on our focus and our lens of looking at things from a, uh, what we know about brain development, we're often in a position to be able to articulate challenges that a child might have differently than a school evaluation does. And we certainly hmm. see kids who, quote, unquote, are in the average range who may have very significant challenges with executive functioning. And being able to articulate that for the school can oftentimes allow the school to move forward in a way that they weren't able to do without that. Um, and I think that that's a role that we also fill um, commonly. So it's not just kids who have significant neurodevelopmental or medical histories, but also it's that child who has that subtle presentation that keeps getting them into trouble, but nobody mm. can quite figure out why that is. Mm-hmm. So the gamut of kids that we see um, are not just those in the, um, again, having profound developmental challenges, right. but we even see kids who are technically kind of considered gifted, who are mm-hmm. still having functional impairments that make it difficult for them to, to do their daily jobs. Oh, that's so important. And I'm, Dr. Anderson, I'm glad you clarified that because you're not involved in setting up kids' savings accounts for their colleges. So I'm so, I said 509, you're like, eh, it's a 504. Um, but <laughs> all these numbers. But, um, you know, I, I wish I would have found you 30 something years ago because that's such a great example because my second, as I mentioned, my second son, uh, did well in school. Uh, is a, he has a very obedient, uh, personality and he follows the rules very well. But I remember going to his school counselor one day and saying, um, I know I've been here a lot to talk to you about my oldest, but I want to talk to you about my second son who's doing very well and making very good grades, but he really has high hopes 
of uh, getting into a, a, a well-renowned school or just, you know, really wants to be guided in a certain area as a guidance counselor could, you know, what can we do for, to work with him? Do you probably have more knowledge than I do to guide him and make sure that he's taking all the classes and doing all the things he should to reach that? And, and I just remember they kind of looked at me like, lady, we are so busy working with your oldest son and all the other kids that are, require, you know, that the kids who just were like you mentioned are just average that were just kind of clicking along. If he could have had some more executive school, I mean, he did very well, got through school very well. But there were just some things that in his personality, those executive uh, skills, neither my husband or I are very good at. And so we really couldn't help him. And I was really searching for someone that could help him. And that's so I love that you said that, that you work with kids that are seem to be doing well, but there is a potential there that could be brought out even more. And how important is that? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I also noticed on your, on your site that you deal with sports concussion. So talk a little bit about how that has come into your, to your field. Yeah. Uh, concussion is a, a very important topic. Um, and I think that's something that um, as neuropsychologists, we are, uh, I think, well-equipped to manage um, the, the protracted symptoms that sometimes can arise following a concussion. I think it's important to know um, and to, to, to say that um, most concussions, um, as, as you probably are aware, are aware resolve um, on their own without any um, involvement or need for uh, a, neuropsycho- a neuropsychologist um, to, to evaluate. Um, I don't know if Dr. Loss, you want to speak to more to, more about that? or Well, I think that um, there's a couple things that we need to, and I appreciate the opportunity to kind of talk about this because, I, as Corey said, it's a, it's a hugely relevant topic right now because there's a lot of Attention, and we've worked really hard for there to be a lot of attention mm-hmm. on this topic in in our in our public uh, literature. But I would also say that we want to be careful because we don't want to create anxiety disorders in parents mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they're all and they they're active, and we want them to remain active and right. involved in sports because we know that's healthy for them, and it mm-hmm. creates robust children in lots of different ways. Um, we have a lot of scientific data to help us with the whole issue of concussion. And we have, we rely on the science as neuropsychologists to help guide us in making decisions about where would we worry and where would we not worry. Um, we now have, because of a lot of efforts throughout um, our state and nationally, we have a lot of really good supports in place. For example, in our state, we have Max's Law, which is a concussion management um, program that was put together. It's in all the high schools required by law. So every high school has a concussion management team. And there are protocols to follow about how to help a student who has sustained a concussion in school sports to be able to dictate how they would return to sports, but also how to evaluate their classroom fatigue and different things like that and when the brain's healing. Um, it doesn't have to occur through school sports, but it was set up primarily to address that issue. But if you have a child who's in high school and they've had a concussion, there is a team in every school who can help you with that process. 
Um, you know, there's other processes, and I'm going to defer to Dr. Anderson because I think it's important for parents to understand what the protocol is at this point in time, but to also know that over 95% of kids recover really, really well, yes, um, mm-hmm. and that brain injury does not equal brain damage. Mm-hmm. And so we want to be cautious and we want to be informed, but we don't want to be reactionary and to, mm-hmm. um, and to be overly um, protective so mm-hmm. that we interfere with normal child development. And so I think it's a great time to just let Dr. Anderson kind of talk about what your experience would be if you as a parent um, find out that your child may have uh, uh, suffered a concussion, mm-hmm. what would be a typical protocol? Yeah, I, I would say that there's, there is a, a, a particular protocol um, that we encourage parents to follow, and I'll say that Dr. Lassie may have said this, um, not every bump to the head is a concussion. So it is important mm-hmm. um, if you suspect that your child may have sustained a concussion to um, see immediately seek medical attention and see your pediatrician first okay? mm-hmm. um, prior to um, seeing a neuropsychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really important to, um, during that acute um, recovery stage, to monitor symptoms very closely. Um, and th- th- those symptoms, there's a host of physiological symptoms, um, thinking symptoms, emotional symptoms, and sleep changes that can um, arise following a concussion. So it's important to monitor those. Um, but the key is to have a gradual return to activity. Okay? Mm-hmm. Gradual return to physical activity and a gradual return to cognitive activity. Okay? Um, and that's really important. Um, what we know from literature is that those kids who have um, the gradual return tend to do better than the kids who um, are removed from all activity, um, either physical activity or cognitive activity, um, than the kids who have a gradual return. So- and I like I like that you're talking about the fact that all children are going to have bumps on the head. There's all you know children that fall fall down, fall out of trees. And do you feel as though it's kind of a popular topic right now? So the the media, the television, they're all jumping on board on this with the football players and the soccer players and things. Do you feel as though there's a little bit of a scare tactic going on because it's, it makes good news? Um, or how do you feel about that? I, I actually would not say that we're having, that there's scare tactics in the media, but I would say that we make lack of sophistication in being able to recognize what data is generated by which population. There's a big difference between an NFL football player who uh-huh. can turn on the TV on any given Sunday and watch the level of impact that those players are under versus mm-hmm. a, a, a small body, small child on a playground who might accidentally run into a pier and land up on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. There's also a big difference in the, the repeated exposure to um, to impact that the mm-hmm. NFL players have had at the point that they reached that level of their career. And so there's a lot of different things that we're studying, the, the, and we have great science going on right now to help us delineate and differentiate 
um, what what we need to do around this issue so that we can be responsible and be protective in mm-hmm. a um, an informed way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's so that's so important. I remember um, in my family, I have a younger brother and an older brother, and my mom was just so afraid of injuries of any kind. So she did not want my my brothers playing sports at all because she just didn't want to have to deal with all of that. And then and then my father is from England, so he played cricket. And so we didn't I didn't grow up with uh, f- watching football, watching baseball. And then I married a, a wonderful man that played football and played baseball. And and so my boys got into it. And it was definitely an eye opener to watch those boys play football and just wah, you know, to see the impact, as you mentioned. And fortunately, they were never injured. But it definitely I can see where there's a lot of moms out there, especially now with all of the information that we have that are scared to death to let their kids play sports. Right. Well, in sports, is, you know, it's not the only place that kids get concussions. I mean, you know, exactly. Right. I mean, so yeah. there's a lot of benefits that we get from sports and we don't yeah. want to exclude kids from those activities. But we're also making different decisions. I mean, there's different rules now about how in practices even how football practices are held so they're minimizing the amount of uh, actual contact that takes place over the course of a practice. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we've changed some of the rules in football to change um, one of the most dangerous plays of all, which is when there's a kickoff and mm-hmm. kids are running full tilt from both directions um, mm-hmm. to try to, again, minimize the impact. So there's a lot of thoughtful decision-making going on about how we can continue to use the data that we're um, generating um, to actually let science guide us. Um, right. But I do think, right. I don't know if it would be useful for you or not, but um, I think that, you know, just being able to talk about some basic things with a concussion, like only 10% of concussions result in a loss of consciousness. Right. Mm. So, um, you know, I think, uh, um, you know, I don't know, Corey, if you want to just talk in briefly about some of the symptoms that you alluded to. Yeah could be helpful for parents. Yeah, so, um, you know, as Dr. Loss mentioned, you don't have to lose consciousness uh, to have a concussion. Um, and some of those those acute symptoms can include headaches, nausea, fatigue, um, balance problems, sensitivity to light and noise. Some of the more, um, I would say, common symptoms following a concussion with regard to thinking include just feeling mentally foggy, or problems remembering, um, or feeling more slowed down. You can have changes in um, emotional functioning, so increased irritability or feeling more emotional. And then certainly you can have changes to sleep. Um, You can be sleeping more than usual or sleeping um, less than usual, um, or just drowsiness throughout the day, particularly Mm -hmm. if... um, if it was a severe um, concussion, for in severe, if you lost consciousness or if you had some of these injury-related uh, factors include um, loss of consciousness or if you had a period of post-traumatic amnesia, which is a period of confusion, um, that doesn't always happen um, following a concussion, but that can um, speak to the severity of the concussion. Um, mm. And those injury factors are one variable that can, um, that we know can contribute to protracted symptoms um, following a concussion or 
prolonged symptoms following a concussion. Other factors include a history of um, learning difficulties or a history of attention and concentration difficulties or diagnosis of ADHD, as well as a history of psychological um, challenges, so anxiety or depression. So if you have a history of those um, prior to your concussion, we know from literature that those things can um, contribute to prolonged symptoms, okay? Hmm. Um, yeah, and if for kids who have or are experiencing those prolonged symptoms, they go back to school um, and then maybe they're going part-time, but they really can't get back to full-time because the lunchroom is too noisy and they get headaches or after they read for an hour, they they get headaches and they really can't get back to return to full academic activity, that's the time, I think, to see a neuropsychologist to really um, determine and delineate what are some of the other factors that could be playing a role and how can we come up with a good plan to support this child in school. Okay? And mm. that may be modified, um, changing the, the, the how long they're working on homework, um, implementing scheduled breaks, before they get a headache in school. So there are some things that we can do and that we can work with the school on to help um, a child be successful in terms of school. Hmm. Is it... There, there Go ahead, Dr. Lawson. I'd like to also add is that um, if a child sustains a concussion, one of the things that's really helpful to us as neuropsychologists or any member of a medical team is to really be able to document yes. what's happened. Exactly. Um, mm. And so athletic trainers are, are very well trained in doing sideline assessments now based on all that research that's been done. There's also different apps that parents can download on their forms. So, for example, there's a, 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 um, a company that creates different assessment tools called PAR, P-A-R, and you can go on their website and you can download an app as a parent that will let you gather and assess basic symptoms of concussion. Because what happens is it's traumatic for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. When our kids get right. hurt, nothing worse for us. Um, and so it's hard to then go back and remember the specifics mm-hmm. of what a child might have been experiencing as a symptom. And, and being able to document that is a really great way to help us assess the severity of the injury and also to be able to gather some information that will guide us about what the appropriate response to that injury is. Um, so that is, that. you're so right. Is it, has, has, the, has the treatment changed over the years? I remember when my, my kids were little that if you were suspicious that there might have been a concussion, you were not to let them go to sleep. Has that changed it has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably, of course, yes. It's, so now let's say you, you have a son that comes home or daughter comes home from soccer or whatever, and they say, wow, I hit my head pretty hard. I don't know if I have a concussion or not. I, I'm just so tired. I want to go to sleep. As a parent, what what is the first thing that you need to do? I think, as Dr. Loss alluded to is um, or mentioned, uh, not alluded mm-hmm. to, but mentioned is, um, to, to establish, to document mm-hmm. injury factors, to really get a good, um, whether that's with your child, probably not, maybe at that time the best person, contact the trainer to find out exactly mm-hmm. what happened and mm-hmm. find out what symptoms um, 
they experience acutely and how they're experiencing those symptoms now, two hours later or three hours later, those things can help you determine um, the next, uh, what you're going to do in the next 24 hours. The okay. Big, the, and the big things that we want to make sure that we notice are major changes in what we call mental status. Right. So that if a child seems confused in any way, um, we want to go immediately to a medical provider so that they can do a medical examination to make sure that there isn't a more severe injury, such as bleeding on the brain or something like that, that could Mm -hmm. lead to actual compromise of health um, in a very serious way. So Mm -hmm. when we have big, big symptoms, I think we want a bigger reaction. Um, And when we have more mild symptoms, we want to be vigilant, meaning that we Mm -hmm. want to watch these things over time, much like you would when your child comes home with a fever. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if it's a big fever, you're going to take big action. But if it's Mm -hmm. a small fever, you're going to be vigilant. You're going to watch carefully, and it's really helpful. You can go either, as I said, on you know, the, the, uh, online to find different applications, but also you can Google the Center for Disease Control. has a wonderful um, information uh, for parents, including how to monitor those symptoms. So we want to be, be driven by symptoms. The thing to know about concussion is that after the brain has an impact, there's a whole biochemical change that takes place in response to that impact. And so in part, that's what we're trying to monitor, is how is that brain responding biochemically to the injury that it's had? You think about it when you have a skin, you skin your arm, you could have bleeding, but you might have tissue swelling, you might have, you know, oozing, you might have all kinds of different symptoms. Well, we can't see what happens at a brain level, so we have to use behavior to help us assess how that brain is responding to that injury. So knowing that symptoms can be there, but how they change over time is a part of it. But a brain that has had an injury wants to rest. It wants to rest because it shuts down all the extra demands around it to kind of help itself start the healing process. So Mm -hmm. I don't think that being worried that a child feels tired is necessarily something that should be ultimately alarming. But if a child is confused and really has a difference in their personality and the balance problems that Dr. Anderson mentioned, those are the times that we want to say, this is bigger and we want a bigger reaction. Let's err on the safe side and go have a medical professional just rule out some of those big things. And then once we rule those out, we can be more informed about the process of recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which really brings us back to the team idea that your services as neuropsychologists, you need to be a part of the team. So if medical doctors doing medical evaluations and then working with school people and other professionals to create a program that's that's holistic, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I think, um, you know, Dr. Loss uh, indicated school trainers, athletic trainers are, mm-hmm. I think, well-equipped right now to... Um, they they understand the return to play, the gradual return to play, and what that looks like. For example, mm. for a child who plays soccer, and how to monitor and gradually increase the level of activity that that child um, is engaged in following a concussion. Um, mm-hmm. And I think 
in, in our experience, or at least in my experience, what's been harder, I think, is in the realm of school, in the mm-hmm. realm of thinking, and how to get, how to return a child to full cognitive activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where I see um, our role. We play a big role um, in collaborating with um, and consulting with uh, the school counselor and making sure that the child can be successful in the classroom. I mean, That's that is, so excellent. We, we do certainly, um, when we see kids, um, we do consult with uh, uh, athletic trainers as well. Mm-hmm. That's gonna, so great. One of, one of the things that has been, um, we love what we do, right? <laughs> so we have to preface everything we say with that because mm-hmm. we love what we do. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that is particularly rewarding is that our practice is guided very much by science. And so mm-hmm. we're fortunate to be able to have research that's continuing to evolve on all kinds mm-hmm. of things. And so we see kids who have neurological conditions, such as seizure disorders, and we know that it is absolutely advantageous for a child who has even well-managed seizures have a neuropsychological evaluation because there's subtle differences and we can predict what those would be um, based on um, based on what we what the science tells us about um, mm-hmm. when we have kids who sustain a traumatic brain injury so a significant injury through um, a Ill, uh, through impact or, or a car accident or something we have a lot of science that helps us determine what might be the best course of action, and how to teach the team around that child what to expect. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think I love about the whole thing is is if you know what to expect and what's a uh, what what a normal expectation should be, then you know how to react. And I, I, I love that. We just have a few minutes left, and I just wanted to slip in really quickly that you also have a memory training program at your clinic. And so just take the last few minutes to just talk a little bit about that, that what you do for increasing memory capacity and, 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 and helping, you know, with people that might have traumatic brain injury or, or even just some kind of improvement. How does that program work? I think what you're referring to is CogMed. Working memory. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah, exactly. That's like, and here's the deal, right? Because we all have these professional terms that we use and so forth, but working memory is actually what we think of as part of that executive system. It's the capacity to hold and manipulate information in mind for very brief periods of time. So it lives upstream of all kinds of different things. It's kind of maybe you can think of it as a gateway into memory, but it's really that kind of mental workspace. Um, Cognet is a program that came out of uh, Sweden and a brain institute. It was one of the first scientifically driven interventions to try to improve working memory. Um, mm-hmm. We are in our infancy and in really being able to understand how cognitive intervention, how we can use it to our advantage. But we also know that the brain can, is able to make changes based on specific scientifically driven interventions. Um, we do CogMed. There's some information about it on our website. There's a lot of discussion about CogMed and other cognitive interventions right now in the professional literature. As I said, I think we're in our infancy about being able to understand it. But what we're trying to do is to impact a child's capacity, and even adults, because we've trained adults too, but um, to impact that capacity 
to hold multiple pieces of information in mind so that you can distill it or prioritize it or move it around or hold on to those three steps when you're implementing directions instead of just one. It's like mm-hmm. when I, where did I put my keys? How do I, you know, those, those are examples of working memory and that's what Cognit is designed to try to influence. I see. Interesting. Well, uh, again, I'm just so, I feel so blessed that I was turned on to you guys, that you, that your name was given to me and I was able to find your services and, and I'm pleased that I live in an area where these services are available. And I know that there are, I was just speaking with someone the other day who actually moved from, I'm trying to remember where they moved, but they moved to the Midwest to get the services that they needed for one of their children. And so living here in this area, there are so many programs that are available. And so tell everyone the, the best way to find out more about your program is probably through your website. Is that correct? Yeah. That would be a great place okay. to go. Okay, and that is basically the name of the the clinic, childneuropsychologypc.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, and then the number that you can call, and this is in Portland, Oregon, is 503-335-2223. And so if you are having children that are seem to be having some kind of difficulty they're not fitting in they're not they don't seem to be developing along the same as some of their peers and you have been maybe contacted by the school or you the maybe your medical doctor has expressed some concerns this is a great place to start out to really find out what's going on and then part of your services is then to do you then direct people after the evaluations are done then do you direct people to services that you think would be helpful we do um, we want to okay. be able to offer we want to be able to offer that translation yeah. how does a child think and learn and solve problems being able to identify strength and challenge and then to be able to help a parent understand what strategies and team members are going to help that child maximize their potential. That's so great because definitely one one thing does not fit all. So that's no. great that you could yeah, that you can individualize internet, that for parents. And, and the internet gives parents anxiety disorders because we have <laughs> too much information. We think we should have done all of it yesterday, but it 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 is absolutely true that one size does not fit all. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, thank you, Dr. Lawson, Dr. Anderson. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to tell everyone about your program. And I just appreciate everything that you're doing. Well, thank you for having us. Yes. It was a pleasure. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks so thank much. you. Have a great day. You, you too. too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Once again, I am so pleased with the services that are available in the Portland, Oregon area for kids. And, and when you look at things, if you, as Dr. Loss was talking about the internet, we as parents, especially mothers, I think when we, we see our children not successful, the first thing we do is go to the internet and we start looking things up and we start looking for lists and causes and symptoms and, and it can be overwhelming and we can be definitely led down the wrong path. So I would encourage you, to look into the child neuropsychology uh, services that they have, give them a call, and let them be a part of your team because I have certainly found out that it takes a village to raise children in this day and age, and we need more than just the neighbor lady and aunts and grandmas is part of our village. We need professionals, so there are a lot of them out there, and it's our jobs to find out what those 
what those services are and to apply them as we need them. So have a great week. I can't wait to talk to you again next Monday. And I hope that everything is going well for you and that you will find some heaven in any part of your day today. Bye-bye. <laughs> 